I want to turn you to a familiar passage of Scripture in John chapter 19 this morning. There are seven sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ from the cross. And, of course, we're quite familiar with some of those sayings. We hear him crying, of course, first of all, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Then we, we come to realize that he cries, it is finished, redemption, complete, by him, by him alone, and uh, then commends himself to the hands of the Father. But there is a saying that will be, I think, quite appropriate for us to consider today, and that is found in John chapter 19 and in verses 25 through 27. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her unto his own home. Of course, we have some powerful words here when we read, there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother. We can't imagine what was going through her heart, though we know the aged Simeon had many years before in the temple prophesied to her that a sword would go through her own soul. So she was indeed suffering mightily, but stood by the cross of the Lord Jesus. She was not alone, as we read, of course, in this passage. Apparently, there were three other women who were right close to her as she stood by the cross. And then we learn also from Matthew chapter 27 that there were other women who were also there, but they were further away from them, the scripture says, afar off. So there were many women who were there at the cross. But the point to be made is that Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ, was not alone. She had those who were there to help in what way they could to mitigate her suffering at the time. She was not alone in her suffering. But her son would go through a phase of suffering absolutely alone. Necessarily alone. There was a unique suffering that, of course, belonged to the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a suffering that none could enter into except he. That would include isolation, a total aloneness. When God would darken the sun and withdraw all communion from the Lord Jesus, and it would draw forth, of course, that awful cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Completely alone. You see, in the sufferings of Christ and all that he suffered that we cannot enter into, 
No one suffered as he. His sufferings went far beyond, of course, physical. They went to the internal as well. They went to the spiritual that he suffered on the cross. But on the cross, in order to redeem us, whom God calls by his gospel and brings us to know him, he on the cross must bear all that his redeemed and saved ones would otherwise have to suffer because of sin in the place of the sinner, including total isolation in order to deliver us from death, not annihilation, but separation of God or from God forever. I think I told you that when I was very young and studying theology, that when studying hell and the very real teaching about hell in Scripture, one of the things that grabbed my heart was this, that people had the idea, well, if I go to hell, my friends are going to be there and we're going to enjoy each other or something. No, no. Uh, there was one who drew forth the application that hate will separate the souls in hell. Man by nature, as a sinner, is a hater. Hateful in wanting, hating one another, as we're taught, of course, in Scripture. And uh, you don't have to go very far but to see the little conflicts that arise that can bring that out in man. But it will go to its nth degree. And there will be a total isolation, a complete aloneness. That's a horrendous thought. Forever. In separation from God. So the Lord Jesus Christ is alone in his suffering, unique in that the Father withholding all communion and all help from him in that horrendous hour. The redeemed, the saved, and believing, those saved by God's grace because of that cross, because of what the Lord Jesus Christ suffered there on behalf of sinners, the redeemed will never have to suffer that isolation, that kind of isolation. Never. Not even in the hour of death. There's a wondrous promise, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. I've been in this thing long enough to have watched people depart this life and watched the death of those who knew the Lord of glory and recognized he was with them in a very signal way. But fellow mourners were with the Lord's mother. These mourners loved her. They shared in her grief. And we shall see if the eyes of our souls are opened, the glory and the greatness of of the Lord Jesus Christ in complete self-denial while caring for others. The care he had, though he suffered like no man ever suffered. The care that is displayed while he patiently bears the agony of the cross. But the passage, of course, as we know, centers upon the Lord's provision for his mother in the hour of his death. 
and for the honor put upon his beloved apostle John, to whom he would commit the care of his mother. So we're going to find some powerful lessons here. We pray God's grace to enable us to apply those lessons, powerful lessons. Well, of course, there's something we can draw very easily, and that is the great suffering may come to those who are highly favored by God. Difficult things, hard things, by those whom God favors. Of course, his mother, highly favored, as the angel, of course, declared, when she found out that in her virgin womb, the Son of God, as the Son of Man, was in development. What blessed words from God through the angelic messenger that came to Mary some 30-some years before this, of course, revealing that Jesus was to be brought into the world through her virgin womb. She was, of course, confused, as we learn in Luke chapter 1. She had never had any sexual relationship with a man. She was a virgin. How could she bear a child? Of course, we know the angel Gabriel declared to her that holy thing, which shall be born of thee, shall be called the Son of God, formed in her womb, of her substance, would be Jesus. But he did not begin there. He, of course, came from eternity into time. He who is God, a very God. We cannot begin to comprehend the wondrousness of the divine incarnation. That God was manifest in the flesh. He went through all the stages of the prenatal condition. Was conceived by her. And brought forth through her womb. Though she had never had any relations with a man. She was not the mother of God. We reject that teaching out of hand. But she was the chosen vessel in whom the body of Jesus would be formed. Highly favored, as the angel would say to her, not above women, but among women. According to his human nature, the Lord Jesus Christ was the son of Mary. But according to his divine nature, uniquely from eternity, he was and is the Son of God, that holy thing, which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And uh, here on the cross, some 30-some years later, here on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ is concerned for his mother. He bears the pains, the horrendous suffering no one has ever borne. Yet, his care is for his mother. But he addresses her as woman. Now, that's very interesting. We, of course, have the word of God. Everything is important. 
We don't always derive all that is therein, and I don't think we ever will. But there are things that are so very important. Even as the Lord Jesus Christ addresses Mary, not, uh, not as mother, but as woman, even this is very important. As one observed, the synoptists set him forth in human relationships. The synoptists, meaning Matthew, Mark, Luke. Not so the fourth gospel. John's gospel presents Christ as the Son of God. And as Son of God, He is above human relationships. And hence the perfect consonance of presenting the Lord Jesus here, addressing Mary as woman. And the Mary of Scripture, by the way, is not the Mary of superstition. She is not some proud Madonna who was herself immaculately conceived. No, she stood in need of a Savior, just like us. As a matter of fact, when you read her praise of God in Luke chapter 1, she addresses God as my Savior. God, my Savior. But not only did she have a spiritual tie to the Lord Jesus Christ, she had a natural tie to him as well. He was her son. And she would suffer, as any mother would suffer, but, of course, a piercing through her soul we cannot comprehend. When her son is suffering, so mightily. She, of course, also sees him as the Lord. She's his mother. He is her Lord, much as, of course, would be said of David. You remember when the contest with the Pharisees, when the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, says, how does David, uh, if Messiah is David's son, that is, comes through his line, how is he his Lord? Well, <laughs> he is his Lord because he comes from eternity. And he is indeed coming by divine incarnation. But she is related to him naturally, of course, as well as spiritually. And we cannot minimize her sufferings, even from what we have heard called the mother heart, as has been said, who first planted kisses on that brow now crowned with thorns. She who guided those hands and feet in their first infantile movements. We should admire the grace that enabled her to stand by the cross rather than succumb to uncontrollable grief and would have rather caused her to sink to the ground. And again, remember something. Mary not only heard the blessed words of the angel before she conceived, but soon after the birth of the Lord Jesus, she heard that prophecy of the aged Simeon when the Lord Jesus was taken to the temple for circumcision. And Simeon, the aged Simeon, was there and had a prophetic spirit. Remember he said, as he held the infant Jesus 
Mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Now let me depart. <laughs> he was ready to die. God had shown him his Christ. He was in his arms. And what a glorious thing. But of course he makes the prophecy to Mary. And in that prophecy he makes to Mary, he says to her, A sword shall pierce through thy heart. Great sorrow. And I got to thinking about that. Pardon me if I... Uh, bring in something personal I think you know that I was raised by my grandparents and uh, particularly when I was small and my grandmother she was my mama I, you know, I never knew other than that until much later I, I called her mama I didn't know she was my grandmother and I loved her with my soul but you know I was talking last night as we were at Daniel and Amy's home uh, you know there used to be a little song um, how did it go? Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Well, I found something on a, a shirt a little boy was wearing one time and said, that would describe me as, as a little boy. Uh, nobody knows the trouble I've been. And that, that was the case. You know, I, I, I think of the griefs that I caused my grandmother. I think of the sacrifices she made for me and uh, now, you know, she'd been gone, and she'd been in the Lord's presence now for near 60 years. Amazing, huh? Near 60 years. And uh, <clears throat> I wish sometimes I had gone back to her, even as a young boy, and expressed how much I appreciated her care for me, her sacrifice for me, what she did for me in those days. And uh, sometimes it takes getting a little maturity to realize what your moms have gone through, what your mothers have suffered, and what they have uh, been willing to give up themselves to take care of you and, and to express that appreciation to them. Well, I'm afraid I caused my poor grandmother more pain than showed appreciation, and it had to get a little maturity to know I'd like to be able to say, Mama, I appreciate so much what you did and uh, express my love to her. But, of course, can't do it now, but I think she may know. <laughs> she's, she's in the Lord's presence. But Mary's suffering was not like that. She didn't suffer because her son sinned. He never did. She didn't suffer because he did anything against her. He never did. No one loved like he. Matter of fact, he was in dying for her on the cross as well. And we know then from Simeon's prophecy, now being fulfilled at the cross, that Mary's sufferings with the Lord Jesus didn't begin there. It has been said, if Christ was the man of sorrows, was she not the woman of sorrows? Think of the journey to Bethlehem and then finding no lodging but a stable. Herod's attempt to kill her infant son. The flight into Egypt, seeing her son despised and rejected by his own nation, as well as the unimaginable piercing of her own soul now at the cross. But you know, when you read, study the life of Mary, 
you can't help but see that she was a woman of great faith. She was a woman of great faith. And who knew, she knew that uh, even due to her miraculous conception, that that would put her reputation in danger. She was a virgin. <laughs> Such a thing had never taken place in all the history of the world from the beginning. <laughs> that a virgin conceived. Of course, it was prophesied seven centuries before by Isaiah. A virgin would conceive and bring forth a son. Yet, knowing this could put her reputation in danger, to the angel she says in Luke chapter 1 verse 38, Be it unto me according to thy word. Complete submission to the will of God no matter what it may cost as far hers as her own reputation. She was a woman of great faith. Mary's faith, such a trust that brought her to the submission to God, also holds some pretty important lessons for us as well. Following Christ does not exempt from suffering. Matter of fact, it may bring a whole new set of them. Following Christ does not exempt you from sufferings. Whatever sufferings are appointed, and whatever we do suffer, they're appointed by God who is an absolute sovereign over all that concerns us. Whatever sufferings are appointed in following Christ, living under his lordship in a world that opposes him and those who love him and obey him, they are to be accounted as sufferings for his sake and sufferings with him. I think of what Paul wrote to the Philippians. In Philippians 1.29, it's given unto you not only to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. We learn, of course, later on that there was much suffering that came to Christians in those days, and would come thereafter horrendous suffering to those who confessed faith in Christ and those who were submitted to God's will and were saved by God's wondrous saving grace and belonged to the kingdom of God. They would suffer mightily. And their sufferings were considered as the sufferings of Christ, Peter would write to them in First Peter chapter 4. The Lord Jesus, of course, could say in Luke chapter 6, Blessed are you when men shall hate you and when they shall separate you from their company and shall reproach you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice ye in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. Suffering for Christ's sake carries with it great blessedness in Scripture. And... Mary was suffering with him. But it also carries something else with it. It carries the promise of special grace to help. Special grace of God to enable the suffering. Whatever he brings, his grace, or we could say with the Apostle Paul, his grace is sufficient for me, as that is promised. In Mary's suffering, the Lord took 
a special notice, of course, of her, even while he was suffering as none ever would suffer or could suffer. Yet he cared for her in that hour of his extremity. He cared for her. He made provision for her need. Her grief was real. Soul-piercing, as the aged Simeon would prophesy. But so was her blessing. The Lord never forsakes those who are his own. All who are highly favored. He gives special grace. He gives special grace for sorrows and sufferings that must come. And we are to trust him in those times of great suffering. And there's something else when you read the context, of course, around the cross. You know what took place when the Lord Jesus Christ was arrested in Gethsemane. What did his disciples do? Did they say, we're going to stay with you, we're going to do all this suffering with you? Of course, Peter boasted about that, didn't he? It didn't work out that way. What did they do? The scripture says they all forsook him and fled. In the hour of his greatest suffering, what would happen to them? What would happen to them? Forsaking the Lord in the hour of his greatest extremity. In the hour of the cross, what would happen to those men? Well, they would come to greater usefulness. All of those disciples fled at the time of the Lord's arrest, leaving him to suffer alone. All but one would be recovered. Of course, that was a prophecy that was given some five centuries before by the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 13 verse 7 um, how does it go awake O sword against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow saith the Lord of hosts smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones then we have the prophecy fulfilled as we're taught in uh, Matthew chapter 26 I think it's verse 31 that this is fulfilled when the Lord again brings those disciples and those apostles back to him. But it must have been more bitter even than his rejection by the Jewish nation when his own disciples forsook him in the hour that he was arrested. They were offended in him. That's what's in Matthew chapter 26, verse 31. The scripture says they were offended. If you look up the Greek meaning of that word, you'll find out one of the shades of meaning is they were scandalized when the Lord Jesus was arrested. And uh, they were ashamed then to be identified with him. They were afraid also for their own lives. They put themselves above him selfishly. They considered themselves, of course. They would be recovered, of course, we know also, after his resurrection, never to again forsake him. But only one, as far as we are in the knowledge of it, only one quickly returned 
and would stand by him at the cross. Why did John seek out the Lord even while he hung in shame upon the cross? Well, I have to think, when you read of the description that John made of himself, how did he describe himself? You remember? Over and over again in this Gospel of John, that disciple whom Jesus loved, he was taken in by that wondrous self-giving love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh yes, it was love in him for Christ, love that quickly conquered his shame and conquered his fear because he fled with him as well. They all fled. But here quickly, John obviously returns to the, to the cross. But it was a responsive love that was drawn from the Lord's love for him. He was taken in by that love. He couldn't refer to himself without referring to that disciple whom Jesus loved. And so here, of course, as well in verse 26, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. There's no love like that. It's the love of God in Scripture is called. It's a sovereign love. It's a love that doesn't love us because we're worthy of it. I'm not worthy of it. I marvel at it. I marvel at a love like that. Of course, that love was being then manifested, even in the cross. That love. Love drew John. What is it that drew you and me who were lost in sin? Who were going our own way? Would have continued to and perished in sin. Except we heard of the love of a Savior. Who offered himself for sinners. And he drew, he conquered us. Not by forcing us. He conquered us by the force of love and grace. One who died for us. One who took all the punishment that we should have suffered for sin. And calls us by his gospel, by his grace, to come to him. To be his. And his alone, loving us in spite of us, not because of us. You might fall into some snare. You might succumb to some temptation. You might let shame prevent you from speaking out for your Lord when you should. You might find your faith weak, feeble, faltering in testing, and in trial. But if you lay hold upon this great truth that he loved you and gave himself for you, that he loved you 
in spite of you. He loves you. Even if, if you walked away from him, he still loves you. He still died for you. He still wants you. If you lay hold of that love, you'll be drawn by a responsive love to him too. To belong to him. To come to him. To return to him. The Lord did not rebuke John, though he too, all of them fled, then John returned. But the Lord didn't rebuke him, nor will he you. But he'll receive you as if you never forsook him at all. There's none like him. None like him. And there on the cross, that love was being expressed in the highest possible way. God commendeth his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the question is not whether you have served him as you ought, or whether you have passed or failed some sudden unexpected test but the question is do you love him who loved you and gave himself for you he gave his all indeed he gave himself for you so an exhortation from another cease then your wanderings and return at once to Christ. And he will greet you with the word of welcome and cheer. And who knows but what he has some onerous commission awaiting you. Well, that's associated, of course, with the time period we're looking at here. But we have these great lessons afforded by the Lord's committal of Mary to the care of John. In verses 26 and 27, again. When Jesus therefore saw his mother, and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her unto his own home. Well, there's some obvious lessons here. Nevertheless, they're powerful lessons. At the very time that the Lord was accomplishing the greatest work in all of history, let me tell you something. My dear friend, a mentor in uh, prophetic scripture who had more knowledge of prophecy than anybody had ever known and helped me tremendously in my early days named Charles Alexander, some of you, Barbara might remember, uh, Charles Alexander. Uh, God used him mightily, and he's now, of course, with the Lord. But he made the statement that the world itself was made for Calvary. And you get to thinking about that. What, what a statement. Had not God purposed redemption from the foundation of the world in Christ, the world would not stand. 
God is displaying his glory, his greatness, his love at the cross. The world itself was created for that cross. There the manifestation of the glory of God is to be beheld. In Christ, crucified. And the securing of the salvation of the elect redeemed. At the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, in the greatest work ever being done, the finishing of the work he was given to do at the cross, the greatest work any could possibly ever do, he doesn't fail to make provision for his mother. In his tender care for his mother, even while on the cross, we have a pattern that we should consider for children as well. The command for children to obey and honor their parents, of course, is both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, both under the law and under grace. You still have this commandment to honor father and mother. And... Uh, <clears throat> That goes beyond the mere duty of obedience. So again, quoting from another. In the course of time, the children grow to manhood and womanhood, which is the age of full personal accountability, the age when they are no longer beneath the control of their parents. Yet has not their obligations to them ceased? They owe their parents a debt which they cannot fully discharge. Ken, I'm glad you're here. Because I've heard your, your mother and your dad speak of you and the care that you've shown for them, the provisions you've made for them, the help you've given to them. An army officer, but he's learned also how to command a, a saw and a hammer and so forth. So uh, and it's very touching. It, it is very encouraging that uh, you show that kind of care and love and honor. Uh, to your your parents and uh, so I'm glad you're here today and uh, it's it's a good thing that I can use you as an illustration here she didn't even know that when you came did you but, so we're thankful for you being here and uh, <clears throat> surely when the Lord says to Mary behold thy son the Lord was telling Mary to treat John as her son. Treat John just like he's your son. And to John, behold thy mother. That he was to take the Lord's place in protecting and providing for her. You see, spiritual responsibilities, they are important, but spiritual responsibilities are not to exclude natural responsibilities. And in fact, they're part of the spiritual responsibilities. Honor thy father and mother. The Lord was undertaking the horrendous work of redeeming a world of lost sinners. On the cross. And John 
was to be a flaming evangel with the gospel, with the word of God. And yet the Lord does not ignore Mary's need. That's a huge thing, really, we have here in this passage. But there's something else that we can consider of great significance here. The Lord had half-brothers. Now, of course, Joseph was his adoptive dad, not his dad. God was his father. He didn't have a human father. The Lord had half-brothers. Later, later on, after the Lord's birth, they had children, Joseph and Mary. But at the time, at this time, they were still unbelieving. And so, instead of committing his mother to the care of one of those half-brothers, he commits her to the care of the beloved disciple, John. That has a tremendous lesson in it. The Lord, through the cross, was bringing a new family into existence, an eternal family into existence. And yes, Mary was his mother according to the flesh. But she was also his child, related to him spiritually as well as physically. She would be with him forever. He was bringing a new family into existence, an eternal family, whose tie would be spiritual, whose love for each other is to even supersede natural ties. An eternal family called the family of God in Scripture. The family named after the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember there was a time in the ministry of Christ when his mother and these half-brothers and some had come with them and uh, he'd been laboring so hard that they wanted to kind of help him out, you know, <laughs> get him to take a period of rest. They told him, your mother, your brethren are without waiting. They're, they're kind of concerned for you. Who's my mother, my brother, my sister? He that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. There is a spiritual family that is eternal, and it's the family of God. Mary and John were one in Christ. They were united to each other in a higher and more lasting bond than any earthly relationship. Earthly relationships stop at death. <laughs> That's why when we have a young couple that comes and they want to be married, tie the knot, we say. Part of that ceremony, part of that vow is that they'll be faithful to other until what? Until death, us do part. That severs earthly relationships. 
but not spiritual relationships. Those who are in Christ, those who know him, are part of a wondrous eternal family. It supersedes, it transcends all earthly relationships. John and Mary both have the knowledge of and mutual love for Christ. They were proper companions one to another. John would take care of Mary as if she was his actual mother. She would treat him as if he was her actual son. And the Lord of glory, who's dying, who is suffering as none other, wants to make sure his mom is taken care of. Of course, we assume Joseph had died before this, but he takes care of her. He makes sure she is provided for. And surely, when mother and father are honored, loved, cared for, when mothers are given the place that should belong to them. It used to be said, you know, uh, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. <laughs> I don't know if you hear that so much anymore because women have been so degraded in our society. They try to put them on a place where they are being degraded actually. And it's a horrendous thing that takes place. Not so in Scripture. Not so in Scripture. The woman has never been put into a position higher than the Lord Jesus could put her in. And so, the woman has a powerful position when biblically it's brought about. When you read of the great leaders of the history of the world or this nation behind them teaching them leading them exhorting them were mothers from time of infancy guiding them in the right direction showing them what was right and it was the mothers who were the power behind much of what took place in the leadership of this nation. There's a power that belongs to the mother. If she perceives it in the raising of her children, that is so very important. And I thank the Lord that though I was very young, I didn't know what was going on with my family. I thought, if you remember, I thought my grandmother was my mom. I called her mom. I never called her grandma. She was mama to me. Uh, I was bonded to her as a son to a mother rather than a son to a grandmother. I'm so thankful to God for her and God's providence in putting me with her when I was young, very young. She was an influence that's still there to this day. Oh, may God grant children to realize what they have in a godly mother. 
Let's stand. We'll have uh, someone, if you'd like to select a closing hymn. Anyone have one they'd like to sing? speak at once 402 right 402 okay amazing grace sisters and by your God and uh, we continue to keep praying crying to him for his mercy for your children but your labor in him is never ever going to be in vain Kenneth please dismiss us in prayer